Good morning, Faith Fellowship. Let's uh, start making our ways back. I do always hate to interrupt the fellowship in the morning. I mean, that's why we're here, to fellowship with other saints, to share in a community and worship God together. So I hate breaking it up. Let me start this morning, too, by thanking all of you who have uh, sent me and my family well wishes. Some of you may have heard, but um, my mother passed away Thursday. Um, we have a confidence and an assurance in where she's going, so it is a transition. We don't mourn in the same way others mourn because of what Christ did for her specifically. And um, in studying and preparing for this message today, in God's providence, we had lined us up months and months and months ago for me to preach on this topic. This topic and these passages have spoken to me in a new and clean and fresh way to give me encouragement, to give me strength, to embolden my testimony in the result and in the midst of losing my mom. So I would hope that some of that would be something that God would have in mind for you today too in listening. So as I mentioned, we are in the middle here, and I'm told that we're in the middle of a series where we're going through John. And on the agenda today, if you will, <laughs> we come to John chapter 11. And for my topics, I have from verse 1 to 53. Now that is quite extensive, and we're going to read all of that here. And I know some of you, that may be a little bit hard to just sit there and go through all of those passages at once. Let me share with you, I understand that. And I also tell you that if I were to take these passages and really exposit them to the potential that they have, we could be here six weeks. And anybody looking to watch like the Ravens afterwards, forget it, right? J.K. Dobbins has a better chance of coming back in time before I do, right? Anyway, so what I'm going to attempt to do as we go through here today, and I've done this through prayer, is we're going to look at this Gospel of John and these passages in particular through two point of views or perspectives. In essence, we're going to do a character study today, and for you, I'm going to contrast Lazarus and Jesus. Okay? So before we get started, why don't you bow your heads with me and join me in opening us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you first and foremost for your son, Jesus. You sent him into the world as a display of your love for all of us so that whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. Father, we confess to you that the grace that that displays is something that can be hard for us to grasp. Our human tendencies have us drifting back to wanting to earn that in some way, only to realize there's no way we can earn the blessings that you bestow upon us. Father, today, as we read the story of Lazarus, let us marvel at the feet of our Savior. Let us marvel at the things of Jesus, of you, of his deity. And Father, let us learn the lessons and hear the voices that you would have us hear in response today. Father, we ask and thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence as we meet together. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So I call this the Lazarus Project, and some of you may date yourselves if you remember a movie by the same, uh, uh, by the same title. Nothing to do with that movie. <laughs> However, the Lazarus story is one that's very well known, and Lazarus's name himself right, has become almost synonymous with someone who's raised from the dead or a new beginning. Right? So in that way, I titled this The Lazarus Project. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11, verses 1 to 53. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm putting it up on the screen. And I'll share with you, although I don't indicate it everywhere, I study almost exclusively from the English Standard Version, right? The ESV. If you're using NIV or something else or, or King James Version, all of the content is going to be essentially the same. The words chosen to interpret the original Greek that it was written in are a little different, right? And I'll do my best to exposit some of that for you here today. But, but join me here, and I'll start, and I'll read this for all of us, and you can follow along. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? I had some technical trouble last time. Let's try this. Verse 9, pick it back up. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Verse 17, I am the resurrection and the life. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days, or four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, and about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I told you, we're going to go through here in one way that I think is best for us to get the entire story. And that is through a character study. And we start with Lazarus. Many of you looking through that may say that he's the main character of, the, of this story. I'll let you decide if you hold the same view by the time we get to the end. But for now, let's look at what we know about Lazarus. First, in verse 3, we're told that he was loved by Jesus. Now we know right, from the verse 1 and forward that he was from Bethany, he was in the same village as his sisters, Mary and Martha. And we also know that he was ill. But then there's this verse 3, right, where the sisters say to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, many of you know that, you know, the Bible and the translators of the Bible, no matter what version, do their best to reflect the word that they think best fits. When you see love in your Bible, that's an extremely tough thing to do. I mean, think about it, right? When we say, uh, I love my wife, that has a rich and deep meaning to it. You understand that. You get that because of the context, right, that's around it. If I say, I love tacos, right, you might understand that, yeah, Bill loves tacos or he loves pizza in a different way, but you would never confuse that way with how I love my wife. <laughs> right? At least we would hope. <laughs> Although she makes some great tacos and pizza. <laughs> right? So is such with this word. And many of you know that there are several words that are used for love. The word used for love here is phileo. Now, that may surprise some of you, because some of you said, wait a minute, I thought Jesus would agape, which is the other word. Some of you have heard that agape, which really describes a love that is divine, that comes down from above, right? A special love that almost is without merit, given and bestowed onto someone. But this phileo here, in many cases, could be, and I think in this case, reflects a little more intimacy even so. He was a friend of Jesus's, is the other way to put it. So we know that Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. One thing, and or I should say many things, that we don't know is what about this man, his life? Right? Was he somewhat of a disciple of Jesus? Was he a believer? We don't know any of that. Right? Was he a good man? Was he a horrible man? Did he take advantage of people? Was he a tax collector? We don't know any of that. And the Bible, literally, for other people, the disciples give us all that whole background of who they are and how they came. Lazarus, the first real thing we know about him is that he's ill 
and he's a friend of Jesus. Or Jesus is a friend of his, is probably more accurate. But let's go on. What else do we know about him? Well, in verse 14, right, we learn that he truly is dead. He's not just ill. In fact, right, we see a little glimpse into Jesus' deity, and then nobody told him that. Right? Keep in mind, they're not text messaging Jesus at this time. They're miles away. Right? That to get somebody there, they sent a message to somebody who had to travel to a new town and locate Jesus. Right? The last messenger that came said, come quick, Lord, because your friend, the man who you love, is ill. Jesus tells the disciple, well, he's not just ill. Right? He's dead. Now, when a person dies, they no longer respond to or participate in the things of the living. Right? They have no desire for food or pleasure or recreation. Or they're not driven by accomplishment or what other people think of them. Right? There's nothing, and they're no longer affected by the things like temperature, pain. Right? There's no pursuit of any of those anymore. There's a finality about death that we shudder at as we have no control over our bodies anymore, yield total control to death. And in many, as we know, the soul is separated from that shell. That's a sobering effect I want us to just stop a second and think about a little bit more. It's been said that two things you can't avoid are death and taxes, right? Both of which have been proven wrong many times over history. (laughs) But they are still consequences that we see. They are still reality. Death and taxes are realities of life. Death, you and I, one day will die. Our physical bodies, right, a shell... We'll be dead, decomposed, we will have no control over it, and our soul will be separated from our bodies. That's the case here. Jesus tells us plainly, Lazarus has died. It also goes on in verse 39 about Lazarus and tells us that he was decayed. Right? When he goes to uh, roll the rock aside, Martha says to him, Lord... You know, by this time, there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Now, what's the significance of four days? Right? Some people think, well, it's paralleling three days kind of in the tomb for Christ. It's not right. It's absolutely incorrect, right? People are trying to put something together that's not there. Four days does have a basis here. The common Jewish belief of the day was that in two days, the soul leaves the body and you're really dead. Okay? So think about it. The way the Bible's telling us, and John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is penned here for all time for us, is that Lazarus was not only dead, he was dead dead. Right? Twice over. No doubt that he was dead. That's why Mary said, oh, he's going to stink by now. Right? He started decaying. They don't have all of the modern miracles that we do now today in preparing people. They didn't embalm, 
right? They didn't mummify the way like the Egyptians would do or things like that. They racked this body and everything in it, prepared it, and put it in. It certainly would have had an odor by the fourth day. Now, Martha knew that those effects of death, and she was reminding Jesus, right? The effects of death is that with it, it always brings decay. Now, think about it. Decay is that process where the body starts becoming less than it was meant to be. The process where it breaks down the ordered, glorious, and wondrous system that the Lord knit together in the womb and instead undoes that creation effect of God by breaking us down to become the dust again from which we were made. It's the exact opposite of the plan that God has for everyone and put in place in the garden. Right? No one escapes death. Romans 5.12 tells us that once death entered the world through sin, it spread to all men. Lazarus was just like you and I. Note that the Bible makes no statement on Lazarus' behavior or his disposition. Right? Again, no mention about this was a good man that died, or for that man, you know, even a believer or a non-believer when he died. It simply tells us he's now dead and decaying. And don't forget that first thing, right, that he's loved by Jesus. Which leads us to the next thing we know about Lazarus. And that's that he was raised and given life. In verse 41 to 44... It says, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And miraculously, the man who had died came out. It's an interesting verse for us in a couple of ways, and I'll just point out a few. One, if you read this uh, as him crying out, as if he's emotionally upset, right, at the whole piece and the whole, you know, emotion of it, and he's somehow through tears saying, Lazarus, come out, I think you're reading it wrong. Okay, when it says cried out with a loud voice, it is pretty close to verbs that use otherwares and forms that is when a commander shouts a command. So Jesus wasn't here emotional, begging. He's confident. He asked the Father. He already knows the answer. He knows what's happening. He's already delayed several days. Fully man, fully deity at the same time. And what happens when he's ready to raise at his word? His mere words, a dead man is raised and walks out. At this point, he had to like waddle out. I mean, you're wrapped up, right? Stuff over your head, your arms are wrapped this way, your feet are tied, bound. I mean, you're getting up off a stone. Some of us like me, it's a little harder even just getting out of bed in the morning, but I don't have my hands tied and everything. But he just gets up probably waddles out everything he can to obey his Savior, to obey God. 
What else can we see from Lazarus? Immediately upon being raised, he was unbound and set free. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Now, Lazarus wasn't just raised, right? And now, Lazarus, now that I've raised you, you're a Christian, I've got all these rules, right? Go start studying the Old Testament. We've got a bunch in Leviticus I want you to start following. We laugh, right? But how many of us have done that unintentionally? Right? How many of us have, after Jesus has given new life as a believer, have then taken on our binds and our funeral binds again, the things that condemned us that we could never follow and could never achieve and strive for the perfection, right, that showed that we are guilty in God's eyes, and we run back to that and put those binds back on. The first thing Jesus does is release those binds and tell him, be free. Let him go. Next, we see that Lazarus' life became a witness. Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did and believed him. Think about that for a second. Did Lazarus come out and give an eloquent legal testimony defending his faith Right, talking to everyone, convincing them that they should believe in Jesus. Right, skillfully wording things like Paul. Right, using the emotion of Peter. Trying some trick, playing nice music in the background. Right, let's get people to believe. What converted people? They saw he was dead, and now they see he's living. <laughs> and that's what they believe. His life itself became the testimony. Let's not stop at Lazarus, because I gave you that little pre-supposition uh, there, right? That Lazarus may not be the main person in this story. There's a joke that says, if a preacher ever asks you who the story's about in church, just say Jesus. You're almost always going to be right. Okay, so let's look at Jesus. Let's contrast that a little bit for Jesus through this whole story. So if we back up in verse 4, we see that, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Why? Was he tricking Mary and Martha somehow? Was he just saying something to make them feel good, right? Oh, let me calm their nerves and control and everything. No, he knew exactly there what the purpose in this illness was. And he goes on and says, really, it's for two reasons. One, the main reason is it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The second reason. So it's for the glory of God, but also the Son of God is being glorified. Right? Every, and I will submit to you, every miracle that Jesus did in the New Testament is to show that he is God. What better way can you think of to absolutely, unequivocally, without doubt, without challenge, no way you can doubt it, right, at all, 
come up and prove that you were God than to show your mastery over death. That thing we can't avoid. That thing that entered the world because of the actions of one man, Adam and Eve. That thing that started to reverse that creation that entered decay into every one of us. Right? The sin, all of that. Are you getting to the point where you have this little bit of aversion towards death? A little bit of a hate towards death? That's healthy. We really need to, every one of us, say, you know, death is horrible. What's wrong with it? It was never part of that design. Right? God's design was always for us to be with him in eternity and have that eternal life through his son. So what else with Jesus? We see he stayed two more days out of love in verse 5 and 6. Oh, this one's going to take a little bit, Bill, because this was a little bit harder to look through and see, right? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, that word so connects the first one to the next statement. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if you just read that, you're like, what the heck? Right? In the wisdom of man... You can't explain that, right? What will we do? If it was us and you hear that your friend who you love is ill, you run to be by their bedside, right? You're thinking in your head, I don't know if he's going to come out of this, but if so, I'm going to be right there with him when he does. And we hold that up as good and true, and it is. But what Jesus is displaying here is his divine knowledge, right? And out of love for Martha and Mary... Right. What that basically does is so that Jesus said, right, and the Bible tells us that he stays those two days because he knows best, but because he knows and loves the family, and because he knows the Father's will, that Lazarus be completely dead dead by the time he gets there. He didn't want any thoughts and chances that anybody else could come against it and say, oh no, you didn't really raise him. He was in a coma. Right? When they opened the door and Mary said he's going to stink, you could almost like, hear Jesus thinking, oh yeah, I hope so. Right? And the same thing, because he wants everybody to know this man was dead dead. No doubts, straight through he knew that the Father would be glorified that way. It would magnify the glory given to the Father, but it would also magnify the faith of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now think also to us, though, how true this can be for us in that we don't often understand the timing of the Lord and that his timing is very different than ours. Right? We think we do, we think we know the best. We pray, and we pray just like Mary and Martha, right, come now. What was in the back? Prevent this death from happening. Right? Noble, noble prayers. And God tells us, bring those prayers just as they are. Right? We have an interpreter that intercedes for us, a comforter, who will take whatever's said, and in groanings, Take that back to God, right? So we don't have to worry about how we're saying it. We just need to come to him honestly and openly as his children. 
But then we need to rest in the knowledge that he's in control. He has that divine knowledge we don't have. We don't often get answers as to why he waits. But many times we do, don't we? Many times when our prayers go unanswered, we see later on and can look back in life when he graces us with that ability to go, oh, wow, God is great. Right? He had all this planned for me at the same time that I wanted this. Or maybe we look back and go, man, that prayer that I was praying at the time, boy, was that selfish. <laughs> right? And I wasn't ready for it if he had given me that. Maybe you're praying for that promotion at work. And then later on you find out, oh, I'm not ready for that at all. <laughs> right? That would be a disaster if something like that happened. Or maybe you're praying for success or something in your business that you're not ready for at all. Or maybe you want to heal a relationship that you haven't really relished yet. You haven't suffered enough through that torn relationship to really appreciate it to the level you're going to come to appreciate it. God knows these things, and we trust him for the timing. We also know in verse 8, 11, and 16 that Jesus is not impacted by man. Man's actions are not going to thwart Jesus. Now, earlier, and I didn't highlight this here, was that really strange passage about walking in the day and the night, right? And some of you are probably wondering, what exactly does that mean? It's real easy. Jesus is answering in Jesus' fashion, saying, look, we're doing the will of the Father. We're walking in the light, right? I'm walking in the purposes of God, and guess what? I'm not going to be stumbling. Those other people that want to stone me, they're walking in night. They're walking in evil. They're not going to prevail against me. We got nothing to worry about. That's really what that one means. But we go on and we see, right, the disciples are worried, they say to him, Rabbi, the Jews, they were just seeking to stone you. It's almost like they're saying, are you crazy? You know, we just got out of there. We got out of there with our life. You want us to go back into that? You know what's going to happen. Right? After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And that's where he lets them know that he's dead, and that's my purpose in life. That's what the Father would have me do. And many of us struggle with this in many different ways of our life. And I would encourage you, just like Jesus knows, those who walk in the light and in the way of the Father have nothing to fear. I would say the same to you. Right? When you walk in light and walk in the way of the Father, you have nothing to fear. Those other things will change. People struggle with this. The classic example is, I'm going to go be a missionary. I feel like God's calling me to go be a missionary in this area but there's like turmoil in that part of the country. If God's calling you, you walk in the light. The turmoil in the other country is the evil and it'll stumble and God's purposes will be done. He never steps off the throne. Right? If you have that theology like Thomas Jefferson did where he thinks that God sets things in motion and then gets out of the way and lets man play the part of moving through, you're wrong. That's not a biblical theology. God is always on their throne, and there is nothing that will remove him from that throne. Nothing on earth, and the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. Nothing will stop him from being sovereign in all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. And then here in verse 16, 
I had to point this out because it was so striking for me, right? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Where else does Thomas get some fame? Show me your wounds. That's the other place, right? Doubting Thomas. Let me put, him, let me put my finger in your wounds. I think he gets a bad rap. <laughs> He's just doing what all of us are doing, right? Really? Jesus, is that you? Really? Let me put my finger in your wounds. Is it really you? We don't get all the emotion that could be in there, and sometimes you get a bad rap. Here, I think it's very interesting, again, Thomas is Thomas. He is who he is. The Bible doesn't make things up and make everybody overly pious. It shows people the way they are. And Thomas, basically, you can almost hear in exasperation. That's me adding it, but you can almost hear him in exasperation going, well, let's go too. Right? If he, we're going to get stoned, then let's get stoned together. They're going to kill Jesus, then kill us too. It's actually kind of what Peter said. Right? And maybe he had just a different inflection than I'm imagining. Maybe he, he was like, you know what? Wherever Christ goes, I go. And if Christ is going to get killed, then I'll get killed with him. Could be. Right? But I think he gets a bad rap, and I love seeing this, this piece in there again and showing their interactions real. What else do we know? We know that he makes Martha a promise. In verse 23 to 26, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know I'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am that resurrection and life. How many times do we do that? How many times do we believe in the things that have been said and the promises for coming true one day? Oh yeah, okay, I know, uh, but I can't get any healing here on earth because I'll get my healing in the end when God remakes everything. That may be true, right? But Jesus is saying, no, I am. Right? And that I am, the great name of God himself, I am, right? Yahweh, Jehovah translated later, I am right? the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall live. What is Jesus saying? I am the resurrection and the life. You can't get any clearer. Goes on, and what about these passages deeply moved? I guarantee that most of us get tripped up here. Guarantee. I did too, as going through it a couple of times. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When we hear that, it's very natural for us to think deeply moved, naturally troubled. He became emotional. Right? In verse 35, right after that, we're going to talk about he wept. So it's real easy for us to think Jesus is deeply emotional. He's deeply upset right? when he sees all of this. And he's upset, but if any of you have peeked into your Bible commentary or pieces before or studied this passage in depth, you'll notice something different, and that is that Greek word that's used there for deeply moved in his spirit is a word that's used in Greek at the time for a horse snorting. Okay, Bill, now you really lost me. Right? Where are we going? You just complain Jesus to a horse snorting? Yeah, your, your uh, commentaries will tell you it says he became indignant is one of the words that's used. 
you could put in there, he became mad. He became mad to a point that he's ready for action. Now are you getting with this deeply trouble? Right, Jesus sees death. Jesus hates death. Knows how opposite, different it is from God's plan. And he is ready to kick butt. goes on again in 36 and says the same thing after web so make sure we get it but then in 35 in between it says where have you laid him he said lord come and see and jesus wept uh, my son reminded me that this is his favorite verse in the bible to memorize it's also the shortest that jesus wept <laughs> right but I'm kind of happy to hear him say that. Because the things that I want him to remember and think about and meditate on, Jesus wept, sums it up. He's completely man, completely human, completely compassionate. Romans 4, 15 and 16 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with, many, or with uh, confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. One of my favorite um, theologians, pastor, author, Kevin DeYoung, he said it this way in one of his books, and I love it. He says, we see here a Savior who is fully human and fully divine, which means if you're a Christian, you have at your bedside, in your corner, on the throne of heaven, pleading for you, you have this weeping Messiah who works wonders. Now, aside from fantastic alliteration, that's something I hope you take with you. A weeping Messiah who works wonders. It's personal. It's connective. It's not religious. It's relation. Jesus sympathizes with us. And then that part that I was just alluding to in the deeply troubled, Jesus dominates death. In verse 43, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus had to. I've heard it said from some other people, right? He had to say, Lazarus, come out. Because if he would have just shouted, come out, Everybody in the countryside with an earshot would have came out. Right? I've heard him say that, and I love thinking about that. But the fact is, when the Savior calls, do we answer? Okay. John Calvin says this, and it really helps us think about this in the right context. He said, Christ does not approach the sepulcher or tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion. Christ is our champion who fought the fight of death and conquered it, rose again for us. He's not intimidated by death. He hates death like we do, but he conquers it thoroughly. He reverses it, he wipes it out, right? And one day for all those who believe Right, and call upon the Savior and place their trust in the Savior, this will be but a mere fleeting time in that full scale where we get to spend in eternity with God, our loved ones, worshiping Him. 
Right? The simple church. The other piece we see is he sets free the bound. Right? In 44, he said, unbind him and let him go. And I talked about that a bit already. He does not call us into slavery under the law again. He unbinds us and lets us go, free to live our lives as a testimony. Last but not least, he dies in our place. All of this in John, everything we've been talking about, right, has been building up to the point where now Jesus is going to become our propitiation, right, our sacrifice. This starts the beginning of those rumblings. We saw at the end here in 49 to 52 where Caiaphas basically prophesizes, doesn't even realize, in the mouth of evil men, what they meant for evil, God means for good, right? Not even affected by men at all, doesn't matter, he's sovereign on the throne. You say it, guess what? It is. <laughs> you are right and wrong at the same time, Caiaphas. But they set those things in motion, Jesus' own death. So I asked the worship team to come on back up to the stage as I kind of finish this here with us. But um, the Lazarus Project, have you figured it out yet? It's not really Lazarus. I mean, John says himself, there are so many miracles, right, that he could fill a library if he listed them all. So why did he list this one in his gospel? Why does the Holy Spirit want this included? Because the Lazarus Project is more about us than it is Lazarus. Right? Some of you figured it out. It's really about that unsaved person. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like Lazarus. Jesus was a friend of ours while we were dead. And even though our families and friends and those who love us may have been praying for us, mourning over us, doing all of that, right, day in and day night, there wasn't any change in my heart before I was a believer until God gave me that ability to do that, reached out and said, Bill, come out. Same exact thing happens here. If you're praying for somebody, maybe you're trying to convince them and you're just staying there. All right, let me help you. Be obedient to God. You won't stumble. You're walking in the light. But pray fervently that God and the Holy Spirit would reach out and change that heart. That God would lift that dead person into life. New life. Spiritual life. Because he wishes that our soul prospers even more so than anything else in our life. Okay? They're dead in their spirit right now. Which means, right, Ephesians um, 2.1 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of the world, we follow the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now work in the sons of disobedience. If you're not a believer, just like you don't respond to food when you're dead, you don't respond to temperature when you're dead, right? You don't respond to strivings or other people's opinions when you're dead. So are the things of God when you're dead spiritually. They hold nothing for you. You can't believe it. An unbeliever has, is unaffected by any stories that come through. Unless God changes that heart first and softens it and says, come out and calls that person. Then in the new life, being unbound, you'll be totally set free. Whoops. 
Also, that unsaved person, they're decayed, aren't they? They have a stink of the world on them. Well, we all do, <laughs> to some extent. We're all affected by that. doesn't mean that Jesus loved them any less. Jesus doesn't shy away from your stink. Take that, right? I don't care how bad you stink. You can be dead, dead. He doesn't shy away. He welcomes. And if he's calling out to you, you need to listen, right? Because that unbeliever can be raised and given life again and unbound and set free. What's that leave? When we live free, when we live for Christ, when we were dead before, that person that was so stinky in the world that we now get risen and changed by beholding him, our life itself will be such a contrast that it's our witness. Amen. Well, maybe you're sitting here today, and for the first time, you heard God say to you, come out. Can I tell you, listen to him? Walk out. Cast off your bindings. Live your life in a new way so they can be a testimony for Christ. Everyone, close your eyes with me. I'm going to pray us out, and then the, the worship team's going to sing us out. But I'll pray for those of you who have come here and maybe don't know how to have the words. But I'll say, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Your grace and glory defines goodness. And when I look at even my best things, they're as filthy rags compared to you. They have the stink of death on them. They have all these other things that I've allowed to take my attention away from you, turn my attention towards, and none of the spiritual things of which you give me good life have I put forth truly in. Father, I hear you say, wake up. I hear you say, come out, and I want to come out today. Father, I come out today for you as a new person, as changed, as someone who wants to live his life in a way that will point others towards you. And I trust in your perfect grace and the freedom that you've given me that you will make it come to pass no matter what. Father, I thank you and I love you and it's in Jesus' name that I pray.